everybody and welcome to Allegory Story. My name is Tegan Aline. My name is Melanie Nevis. And today we are doing our part two episode of the Goddesses of Witches. And we are going to be talking about a group of goddesses, but there's really one that's going to be at the center of the story. And that is the goddess Diana, who is also considered by many people to be um, the, the goddess of witches. We're also going to delve a little bit into her relationship with Artemis from Greek mythology and Aradia, which comes much, much later on in history. So let's get started. <laughs> so I want to take you back way, way, way back thousands of years ago, <laughs> 2,345 years to be exact, to the Mediterranean. So when we're talking about the Mediterranean, we're talking about the Mediterranean Sea and kind of everything that is surrounding the Mediterranean Sea on land. So we have many parts of Europe. We have parts of um, like what is now part of the Middle East. We have parts of Africa. All of that is kind of encompassed in that. And I want to, before we get into talk, talking about Diana, kind of build the scene for where we are. So we're in this Mediterranean area. A lot of it's going to actually focus around what we know of today as Italy. And we're in the Hellenistic period. And this is something that kind of I had recent, I had just discovered in doing this research, what the Hellenistic era was. Do you know a little bit about that at all? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So for the record, the Hellenistic period is like the the later dovetail of leading out of the kind of Greek era mythologies and customs leading into when the Roman empire kind of begins to come in and take over. So um, there is still a lot of connection to the ideas of the Greek classical mythology, the Greek classical pantheon of the, um, the Olympians. Yes of the Olympians and that idea. But at the same point, Rome is becoming developed um, and it's mm -hmm. and it's building its, you know, everybody's been famously talking about the Roman Empire <laughs> on social yeah. media and how, yeah. many, <laughs> how many of their husbands uh, think about the Roman Empire on any given day. Well, this is like at the, the, the Roman Empire was established already, but this is when it's really starting to unfold. And it's kind of like, that transition period, which is very interesting. Yeah. So we're just talking about that. Really in terms of people, if people like think more about if if you link people to it, it's you're looking at the time between the death of Alexander the Great and the rise of Augustus in Rome, basically. Yeah. So we're looking about at about an approximate, I think approximately three hundred year period, I think it was, between Alexander the Great dying in 323 BC um, into the death of Cleopatra VII, which is the Cleopatra we all know, um, in 30 BC. And like I said, transitioning out of this classical era and the emergence of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire kind of kicks off around 27 BC, but it really starts to establish itself around 31 BC. And 
actually generally ends around 395 AD. So that's like a huge, just that in itself is like a huge, huge period of time. Yeah. And so with that, I want to focus on Diana because she really emerges in the Hellenistic period and is considered a Hellenistic and Roman goddess. She symbolizes the hunt, the moon, crossroads, and the countryside. And I think it's really interesting because when we discuss Hakate, the crossroads and darkness are also associated with this goddess as well. Um, She is said to have originated in and around the outskirts of Rome, actually, her temple was Lake Nemi, Mimi. I don't really know if I'm saying that right. Um, <laughs> and the lake is also known as Diana's Mirror. And I think what we see a lot is the same thing that we discussed previously around Hakate. She is actually maybe not specifically Diana, but when we're looking in terms of the Bronze Age, there are a lot of different um, smaller tribes and communities Mm -hmm. that have their own specific deities. And many of them often have something that they pray to that is connected to the forest because before agriculture, people were hunting and gathering and they had some type of person or thing or idea entity that they wanted to pray to in order for things to go successfully for them when they were foraging for food um, and being out in the forest. And this ends up accumulating into Diana. Yeah, because I was going to say, like, you know, Romans kind of came in and changed the names of a bunch of Greek gods and goddesses. But I thought that Artemis was Diana. Well, that's kind of what I was getting to next, actually. Okay. (laughs) Because what I was going to say is that a majority of what we know about Diana is exactly that. It's absorbed mythology from the Greek Pantheon and from Artemis. So Artemis is also considered the goddess of the moon, the goddess of the hunt. And what happens is that as the times shift out of the Hellenistic period into the Roman period, they find ways, just like we've talked about before, to merge the ideas of the surrounding uh, peasant countryside people and the ideas from the from the Greek um, Pantheon into something that is going to be comfortable for everybody that kind of fits the mold of what these people already believed. So Diana actually ends up absorbing a lot, almost all of um, Artemis's mythology to the point that we don't know, we don't have a lot of mythological record that's directly related to Diana, very similar to Hecate, because probably her worshippers and her followers were really done in small groups Hmm. now what happens with the the idea of diana really she really kicks off and really goes on a on a big journey and becomes quite a well-known goddess but ultimately the original idea of who diana would have been she obviously wouldn't have used that name and most likely 
she wasn't necessarily one single person. It was a bunch of different deities that represented the woods and nature. Um, Mm -hmm. We don't, we don't have a lot of information on those stories now because they were, they were so old and so far, but so she really is frustrating. It's super (laughs) frustrating. And, and don't worry, you're, you're not alone in thinking it's frustrating because other people thought it was frustrating too, but that's in the 1800s and we'll get there. (laughs) So yes, she does absorb a lot of Artemis's myths, including including her origin story. So Artemis's origin story, and this is kind of why I wanted to do them together because really they, in a way, they kind of are one in the same at this, at this mm-hmm. point in time. Um, Artemis's origin story is that her mother's name is Lato, Leto, Leto, I think. And I also believe she was a daughter of a Titan as well. And of course, as we know, Zeus has got an eye for the ladies and Zeus is enchanted by her, by her demure, demure beauty. Sure, of course. Right. So, um, so, you know, they get romantic, they have relations and, and she gets pregnant and Hera finds out and she's pissed about it. Because Hera's mm-hmm. always angry. <laughs> but Hera is so mad about it that she refuses to let Leto have her children or her babies anywhere on Earth. So Leto is kind of cast out to find a place in the ocean to like have her baby and her babies. And eventually the one place where she can find that's actually on land is an island called Delos. And there she gives birth to Artemis. And then immediately after she gives birth to Artemis's twin brother, Apollo. And I think we talked a little bit about Apollo in the other, in the other episode on this. And Apollo, I think just touched upon it. So he's a God. I think it's so funny. And all of this, I didn't really do a lot of research on him, (laughs) but I think he's about, he's about a son. No. Uh, yeah, Apollo yeah. is the god of sun and light. Okay. Generally. Oh, okay. I was. Um, I thought I was yeah. making that up. Okay. Maybe I did. No, maybe no, no, no. Like around that. So Helios pulls the chariot, but Apollo is the god of light. Ah. Uh, okay. Right. So Artemis is. So that makes Artemis and Apollo twin brother and sister. And the legend actually goes that the minute that Artemis gives birth she turns around and starts aiding her mother in the birth of Apollo. So she is also considered the midwife to Apollo, which I think, again, we're already starting to see these early on connections between, between Diana and Hecate. Um, Mm -hmm. Also in real, or sorry, Artemis and Hecate. Some of the research I was reading said that Hecate is actually Artemis's cousin and Artemis is very much uh, a sole female person like deity she wants to be alone she wants to be in the woods she doesn't like people she likes animals and she likes nature and i guess because she helps to deliver apollo zeus asks her like if he can bestow a gift on her and she says i don't ever want to be forced to be married and mm-hmm. so thus in the greek myth- mythology artemis becomes um a virgin goddess 
the goddess right. of the hunt, the goddess of the woods. The virgin element is heavily noted in the Greek stories. When we get into Diana, it's less of, of a point of contention. But the idea is still the same, that Diana lives in the forest and she's very um, disassociated from the society around her. She wants to be with the animals. She wants to be with nature. She doesn't like messing with people. <laughs> Fair. I completely understand that, honestly. Oh, I do. The vibe is real. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so in so what ends up happening is in the Hellenistic and Roman uh, traditions, the story is exactly the same, except instead of it being Ju- uh, Juice, <laughs> Zeus, it's Jupiter, and instead of it being yes. Leto, it's Latona. The names okay. change slightly. But wait, so Hecate and and Artemis can be viewed as cousins. But if the Hecate's story of her being Zeus's daughter is actually true, wouldn't that make them half sisters? It's a very Yeah. The Olympians it's a moot are, point. The Olympians <laughs> are, are so incestuous. It's like, why would you even like just the level yeah. to which we put these people and ideas and <laughs> concepts on a pedestal with incest? connected to it like that's its own show not even well look I honestly think (laughs) that in any tradition the pantheon that exists for any gods is a direct correlation and reflection on humanity absolutely and the way that anyways yeah and it dives and it really breaks down to royalty money power all of that stuff so yeah Anyways, continue. Sorry. It's okay. No, it's fine. It's it's true. Yeah, I guess she could technically be the half-sister. I, I read a bunch of stuff where they said she was a cousin. I'm sure there's like multiple stories. You know how these things go. They all The stories yeah, kind of yeah. change and they have variations. So the other very famous myth of, I'm going to say Artemis Diana, because there are even actually statues statues that you can find in museums to this day that are depicted as Artemis Diana. Huh. The two of them. Interesting. It's kind of, it's it's definitely not a secret that these two kind of embodied one in the same throughout mm. this like transitional period of time and into later eras, right? But the, and the other most famous uh, myth is the myth of Actaeon. I hope, I hope I'm saying that right. Maybe it's Actaeon. Anyways, so in this myth, um, depending on who you want to say, Artemis or Artemis slash Diana, is in her favorite grotto after the hunt. And I don't know, I'm not sure exactly what grotto means like in English, but I know grotto in the French term, which is like a cave. Always, there's always a cave in a grotto with like an open forest and then around it and then like water in and running through it with like pools of water inside. So it's the same thing in English. Okay. Like grottos are natural, like cave formation kind of in water. Okay. So she's in her favorite grotto in a wooden valley, a wood lad laden valley. So filled with all of these beautiful trees. And this is where she likes to relax. Um, after she's been on a hunt and Actian is a young hunter and he stumbles across the grotto accidentally and witnesses the goddess bathing without an invitation 
And when she sees him, she splashes him with water from the pool and in doing so curses him and turns him into a deer. Now, unfortunately, this young hunter had dogs with him. And when she turns him into the deer, they don't recognize him as their patron anymore. They recognize him as a deer and they continue, they go on to chase him, track him down and pretty much tear him to shreds. (laughs) So this is also a, yeah, ouch, but it's, but it's very interesting and it's very like, um, it's a very, it's a strong story about a woman mm-hmm. who does not want to be intruded on and is not afraid to, to fight or do something back. So mm-hmm. it's really interesting because there are certain variations of the stories. The later stories, um, he accidentally stumbles in on her, like in the Roman Hellenistic stories. And it's, and it's an accident. He didn't mean to do it. In the Greek stories, um, it was intentional. You know what I mean? Interesting. So that part of the story varies. Also, the fact that was there even a pool there at all? Did she splash him with water? That part of the story varies in different tellings. So sometimes there is a pool of water. Sometimes there isn't. So there are, you know, again, many. If it's a grotto, like grottos are are natural cave formations, but they kind of, if it's high tide, the water rises in the grotto. Well, this is the point. Sometimes it's not a grotto. Sometimes they're just in the forest. Oh, okay. So the variations, they're they're small variations, but it's something that we always see, right? Like in all of these stories, there's a a bunch of different versions that flip one thing in or out, depending on maybe the time or who was telling it. I mean, I think the fact that in the Greek version, it was an intentional... um, creep and in the roman version it changed all of a sudden to accidental is quite telling of it's quite interesting uh, yeah yeah it's quite telling of all of a sudden uh, a woman you know lashing out and acting with her emotions without being given reason because it was just an accident mm-hmm. oh yeah that's and a it kind of gives rise to that mm-hmm. um whereas you know in the Greek story, it was an intentional creeping. And and therefore, the punishment, you know, whether or not it's just, um, it was warranted mm-hmm. in some degree, you can argue. Yeah. You know? So when we look at it, we can see that there are, there is kind of these two deities that have kind of combined and merged. And the stories that we know about Diana are the same stories that we know about Artemis. But when it comes to Diana herself, she's kind of the the name, at least, that proceeds forward, that moves forward with everything as, as time and history evolves. And she actually is a combination of Artemis, but also Diana of the Wood who is mm-hmm. this figure that is more related to, to the communities that would have been in and around Italy, in and around North Italy. I think they have like records kind of all over European Mediterranean of a form of goddess of this type. You know what I mean? And, um, 
But in relation to Italy, what we know as Italy now and Rome in specific, in specific, even before the Roman Empire is the the Roman Empire that we know now, um, they have built they have built built shrines to her, um, and she has this one uh, temple in Lake Nemi, and then but she also has a temple that's just very interestingly a right on the border of the original city of Rome, just as you hit the outskirts, because ultimately she's meant to be like a, like a goddess for the common people. And this, Mm -hmm. and this idea of her being a goddess for the common people plays a huge, huge focal point in the lore that is developed about her, even in the modern times coming up. Interesting. Okay. So there are accounts through the Iberian Peninsula, southern France, and southern Belgium, which is quite interesting, related to Diana throughout history, though they were most likely local deities conflated with Diana. So southern France and southern Belgium, but not northern France? Yeah, it's interesting. And oh. uh, they don't, there's possible, I would, if, okay, so southern Belgium and northern France used to be its own area called Flanders. So right. there could be a couple things happening there. Like I'm speculating at this point because I don't really know for sure, but that mm-hmm. could include part of northern France. They okay. could have had, they could have had something just directly related to like the, the people of Flanders. It's it's hard. It's hard to say, but um, but it's interesting that it's up there, down here, and in the middle is all maybe something something else. Yeah, that's intriguing. Yeah. yeah. So what is really interesting, like I've said before, is that somehow Diana manages to survive and is still worshipped in the early stages of the Christian period. So she survives all the way she kind of merges with Artemis. She survives in the form of Artemis in a lot of ways throughout the like Hellenistic Roman period, but now she's called Diana. And, and it's funny because in the Hecate uh, podcast, you had mentioned something about the dark moon and then they would count their moon by seeing the first sliver of the, the bright moon. Well, that that's her symbol is the crescent moon. So you, and same with Artemis. So you'll always see Artemis or Diana depicted with that crescent moon, like on their head. You'll also usually see them with an arrow because of the hunting element with dogs, because they, Mm -hmm. because of that myth um, about her turning that guy into, um, into a deer. You'll also see her with a deer. She has a lot of different symbols that kind of represent the two of them together. But anyways, she she survives and she manages to be continued to be worshipped even into the Middle Ages in and around the 6th century-ish and into the 13th century, which is really, really interesting. And she somehow throughout Christian time, because at this point, the Christianity moves in, they're trying to get rid of all of this, um, like polytheistic ideas. So she ends up reverting back into the communities into becoming like a local deity again, like a local Mm -hmm. goddess to the people again. And that idea of her being connected directly to that comes through more. 
And I think it's quite interesting because ultimately I feel like Diana actually represents nature and she's kind of Artemis and Diana are kind of a representation of mother nature in a sense. And I think that's part of the reason why even when people are saying don't believe in any of that stuff, there are still communities that are rural living out in nature that have, they just absolutely couldn't see the world without her or without that. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. That makes perfect sense. So things start to get interesting, of course, because now Christianity is taking over and this part is going to be a bit tricky for me to explain, but it's so freaking cool that I had to (laughs) include it because this is at the beginning Like Diana is so deeply intrinsically connected to the roots of witches and the root, the negative connotation of witches, because Mm -hmm. what happened (laughs) was um, the church, you know, it's spreading. They're evangelizing all of these Mediterranean countries. They're in France, they're in Germany, they're all around and they all pick up stories about some kind of goddess, either it's Diana or it's something like Diana. They might've just been considering it like the same thing, even if it was a different thing, but a woodland goddess basically. Right. And it's very tricky when you're taking over a society, it's always the rural areas that tend to hold on to these ideas longer because their families have mm-hmm. been there forever. These are part of their folk practices, right? So yeah. all of a sudden, the the people in the churches, the priests, all of a sudden, in and around the 6th century, we start to see a lot of notes, a lot of letters being written about groups of women who go out at night in a procession and they go out. Uh Oh Uh -oh, yeah. They go out in a procession of spirits. And I have to read this right off the paper. I hope I saved it because it was really, really, I didn't save it. Okay. Let me see if I can recall what I read about that. Cause it was really interesting. So the idea was that these women, they would go out at night and they would dance and they would frolic and then they would go into people's houses and eat all of their food and drink. But somehow all of the food and drink would be back again after they had the food and drink. So that sounds awesome. Yeah, it would be restored. <laughs> and they would sit there and they would laugh and they would talk and they would talk about herbs And they would talk about medicines and they would talk about midwifery and they would exchange tips and things like that with each other. Hmm. And so this began to, the the church started naming this the Society of Diana. And this is at the point, and you you may have heard of that concept before, the Society of Diana. This is the idea of the Society of Diana. It's this secret group of women who go out at night and do these things, which are supposed to sound really dark and mischievous. But really, to me, I was like, it sounds like they're incredible house guests. (laughs) That sounds great. Yeah. But it is this society of Diana that they kind of build on it. They even go as so they go so far as to connect her to um, the mother of Salome from the Bible. So in the Bible, huh. yeah. So I wrote her name down. Let's see if I can find it at some point. 
You know what's interesting as you're you were talking about these women? Mm-hmm. I just heard um who's the author of Caliban and the Witch again? Uh Sylvia Sylvia Federici. Yeah, that's it. Sylvia Federici. Um I heard her speaking in an interview mm-hmm. about the term gossips. Because women would get together and it would be midwives and female friends and they would get together and and accompany expectant mothers and they were known as gossips. And it had a very different meaning than gossiping does now. Like gossiping means to like talk about people, but they would just fill their days with idle chit chat instead. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about how in Which the story of do. Noah's Ark. Yeah. Yeah. When they hang <laughs> she out. Was talking talk. about, yeah. <laughs> we talk, but not necessarily about people. Like no. And we don't like gossip about people and stuff. So no. it's taken on a different word. But she was saying that in the story of Noah's Ark, um, you know, Noah got all of the stuff together and then went to go find his wife and was like, hey, we need to leave. And she was like, well, my gossips need to come with me. And he was like, no, 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 just you. And she was like, no, I'm not leaving without my gossips. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> and I kind of love that. that and I feel like, <laughs> yeah, I kind of find like love that because it was just a term for friends and friendship. And for some reason you were explaining this like this group of of these followers of Diana Mm -hmm. of these women that just got together and would eat and chat and you know they were they were gossips and for some reason that just uh flew into my head and I kind of love it (laughs) yeah I think it's very it's very connected into this idea and and I mean to take it a step further women can spend a whole day just talking with each other about stuff it's not necessarily about mm-hmm. people. It's just about stuff. Like, you know, yeah. we we can do that. And I think that's a major way that women share, they bond and they create connections. And um, I think that's that historically maybe seemed quite dangerous to a lot of people, especially people who are trying to isolate and individualize. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So at some point, the, the church decides to name the women doing this stuff, the Society of Diana. And they go as far as connecting this to the stories of Herodias, which Herodias is the mother of Princess Salome. And Princess Salome is the one in the Bible who is demanding John the Baptist's head on a platter <laughs> in, in the New Testament. Right. Yeah. So... Princess Salome and her mother are both depicted in the Bible as hedonistic, dark women. And they start to connect. And you can see even in the name Herodias, there's the D-I-A-S at the end, which is not so far off Mm -hmm. from Diana. They find Mm -hmm. ways to connect these stories together. And this is essentially where these old school witch stories of witches going out and frolicking and like, you know, enacting sexual rituals with the devil. This is like where that the origin where of those stories come from. And so that's why mm. I think that element of it is very, very interesting because in our first episodes, we talked about this idea of the dark, scary witch versus what many of us feel like what a witch is. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting because we talked about the reclam- reclamation of those things and reclaiming these things one in the same. And it's interesting to see where those pictures got painted in the first place and 
like who mm-hmm. painted them and what we've done with them since it's very yeah it's kind of like wow oh, so I, cool i can't believe that you know so that's kind of where that starts and i know that we will have another season where we get really where we do a deep dive into the witch trials but this is kind of enough of the idea where that starts and where those deep dark stories about witches start to emerge and it's important to make at least a side note in this to say that um all of these concepts of what a witch was like working with the devil and um doing these curses and spells and stuff. These are all concepts that are created by witch hunters in the medieval era. Mm-hmm. And, and they're all, again, written into books. And therefore, this whole negative spin, which is honestly, today we would look at it as a PR spin. <laughs> this whole negative spin <laughs> on what witches are kind of comes out of all of that. Mm-hmm. So then we're going to jump ahead quite quite a lot because when I was looking up um goddess witches one of the first ones that came up for me was actually and I think it was just because it was alphabetical order but one of the first ones that came up was Aradia and I was like hmm I've never I've heard of her but I don't really know and neither she's also considered the queen of the witches and she's also considered the messiah of the witches oh just using the term messiah is very strange yes i was going to say intriguing okay so i'm like okay let's let's see where this takes us so i start to fall down the aradia rabbit hole and it's an interesting one so okay where we leave off in history is that the church is trying to take over and they're developing these ideas about witches and then witch trials happen. And and people after this point for very many years through all the Middle Ages, as things progress and change, are kind of laying low on the witchcraft front. Like if they're mm-hmm. if they have folk practices, it's it's not talked about. And this is definitely the time where where those kind of practices are secret and and hidden and maybe not even practiced just for the sake of safety. And then we get into the 1800s. (laughs) And this is actually where things start to shift. Now we're really, really jumping ahead. And the main power at that point is Britain, is the United Kingdom. Yeah. Right. And I'm sure like we actually also see many stories around the French courts of Versailles from the 16th, 17th century messing around with witchcraft and things like that. So let's say that somehow in and amongst all of this, things start to shift in medieval society. There's always a difference between uh, folkloric magic and hierarchical magic, which is more related to astrology and more related to people that were more learned. So people that could read and write Mm -hmm. and things like that. A lot of that magic actually came out of the church, but that's another conversation for another time. We know that rich people love to to mess with magic because they want to find ways to be more powerful and more rich. (laughs) So there are traces of it throughout society and history but when it really starts to reemerge again and in, in, is in and around the 18th century and then mostly at the end of the 18th century into the 19th century and just when you start to think of the stories of witches it's kind of like you know there's that whole 
precursor period with um, colonization and the Salem witch trials and all that stuff. So things are starting mm-hmm. to build up. And there is like a really bizarre phenomenon that happens with like higher classes of people in the late 1800s to the 1920s where they have this revival where they're very very interested in magic they're very interested in Egyptology Um, and maybe some of that maybe that some of that comes from the ability to be traveling around and seeing all of these places and getting like interested in the mysticism so within all of this this brings us to Aradia the gospel of the witches which is written in 1899 by a man named charles godfrey leland and he is a princeton graduate born in philadelphia in the united states of america and i wish people could see your face right now because you're like wait what this was so mystical and then like this dude from philadelphia shows up like yeah it just doesn't track it doesn't track <laughs> i felt the exact same way i was like what? What? I am very confused and befuddled. Yeah, you should be. I I don't understand. I was too. So this guy is actually, he's a humorist. It gets worse before it gets better. Trust me. He's a humorist (laughs) and he becomes most famous for writing like a comic strip that goes into the newspapers. Um, And with that, a little (laughs) bit of notoriety and money, he starts to travel and he becomes like a folklorist. So he's honestly in a way not dissimilar to us where he's very very interested in folklore and the cultures and like the secret things underneath the surface in places far away and interesting you know what I mean so he starts traveling around and it's in this time he finds himself in northern Italy where he meets a woman who is a um, fortune teller And she agrees to be his kind of like his informant witch. She agrees to be (laughs) his informant witch for a a coven of witches in the northern in northern Italy in the late 1800s. That has been that claims to have been following practices dedicated to Diana, you know, since last we left off all the way through folk. Italian folklore magic, which I think might be interesting to you considering you've been reading some of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm into Italian folk magic and I'm into all folk magic, really. Yeah. So a lot of this, I think a lot of probably, anyways, I digress because I think a lot of what we know of it could basically come from this moment. So it's quite interesting. So anyways, she apparently introduces him to her coven. She gives him a lot of information. And with this, he writes this book, um, Aradia, the Gospel of the Witches. And the book is based on this idea from this coven that at one point, Diana is the creator of all life. And Diana represents the darkness. And just like the darkness, the seeds of life live inside of her. And Diana, when she creates the world, she decides to divide herself into light and into dark. And the light becomes her brother, to which she names him Lucifer. Sure, she does. Right. Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So she divides, so she divides light and dark. Lucifer becomes the light. She is the darkness. And within that, 
for some reason, she gets this aching need to have the light return into her. So she really, really wants to merge again with the light, but the light doesn't want to merge with her. The light wants to be its own thing. So mm-hmm. somehow she finds out that Lucifer loves to sleep with a cat, a little black cat. Yeah, the symbolism <laughs> is abound. It's freaking crazy. <laughs> So she convinces the cat to scoot for a little bit. She trans Diana transforms into the black cat and she goes and sleeps with Lucifer and together they create a daughter named Aradia and Aradia is brought to the earth by Diana to teach the witches the ways of their craft. And that is why Aradia is considered the Messiah of the witches. I know what you're thinking. I'm not into this story. I know what you're thinking. (laughs) I know what you're thinking. It's really because of the time period, because it's the early 1900s, and because it's written by an American, we're just like, this is bullshit. Absolute crap. Right? Yeah, I'm not into this This book, this book, along with another book, which I can't remember the name of right now, but this book becomes the central, one of the central belief structures for what we know today as neo-paganism and Wicca. So this book actually, it's wildly criticized. It's important to say. It's wildly criticized by folklorists. A lot of people say that he made the story up, that like he has no sources. He doesn't he doesn't talk about the coven in order to protect the coven. There's a whole bunch of like um arguments around it. There are historians, folklorists, many people that have denounced this work as a piece of fiction. And I think that's probably where the problem around this book comes is that he presents Mm -hmm. the book as like, um, as like something that is factual, whereas probably if it was presented as a piece of fiction, it, it wouldn't have had the same response no it wouldn't have but like he's presenting it as factual and let's just hypothetically say it was uh i don't know necessarily that a coven who has kept this secret for thousands of years would want some douche like to go and publish all of the secrets so a lot of people really doesn't make any sense a lot of people really really criticize this guy for this piece of work but it's very interesting because whether it's criticized or not a lot of what we know of as modern day neo-paganism and wicca is derived from his book like the guardian tradition is based on his book you know what i mean so it still has whether whether we want to accept it or not it still has an incredible impact on essentially his book is actually what led probably both of us to even being introduced to this stuff in the first place which is bonker balls to think of the <laughs> other thing that's really interesting to think about about it is the fact that yeah he is very heavily criticized for maybe ad-libbing, adding too much information that maybe wasn't there. But we know that like, this is really a construct of the era and the way Mm -hmm. that education and things work in that time. Because we know most of the stories we know from folklore are especially like, like, let's take Celtic folklore, for example, it was all written by Romans and Greeks. Yeah, because they didn't write anything. So we know people have input their own interpretations throughout. But in this context, in that time period, it becomes 
something to be very harshly criticized. And I and I'm not judging it either which way. I just think that the, all of that is very like something. It's just so convoluted. It, and it doesn't quite make any sense. And I'm There's, curious enough now, though, that I do want to read it. Oh, I'm going to read it for myself because because it doesn't quite make sense. It doesn't quite make sense because Lucifer is who she divides. First of all, the story sounds biblical. It sounds like a Christian story. Second of all, Mm -hmm. there's Abrahamic inverted in like added into it with the concept of Lucifer, which we know is like a Catholic idea comes from Hebrew comes from other stuff yeah. like completely. So it doesn't fully, it doesn't fully jive. Like right away when I read the story, I was like, wait, what's he doing here? <laughs> yeah. It just, and then mm. with the element of the cat, that sounds like a very old school Greek thing. Like, an, like Zeus turned into animals all the time to sleep with people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, so, lots of gods turn into animals all the time, but Zeus specifically did it to sleep with people. Sure. But this, <laughs> but at, so on one hand, I understand why it seems like ridiculous. But at the other hand, I you can see the traces of time based on what we've talked about already in this podcast. You can see traces of time through that story. So I mm-hmm. listen, I don't know if it's true or not. I'm happy to let society decide. But I just thought it was very interesting because for a very long time in the in the early 1900s and the early neo-paganism Wicca movement, Aradia was considered the queen of the witches. She was considered a high deity. And even people like Scott Cunningham were were focusing on her. And it wasn't until more of this kind of got explored that mm-hmm. they kind of reverted back to Diana. So ultimately today, if you follow this kind of like, um, you know, if we look at what we talked about in the second or third episode about witchcraft and the fact that you don't necessarily have to have a deity to have a craft. And if you follow a religious group or a religious pantheon, that kind of falls under the Wicca umbrella. If you look at everything from that perspective, Diana then becomes quite a big figure. It's almost like she's the most well-known deity in terms of praying to witches. Aradia is this mysterious daughter. Was she real? Was she not? We don't know. And then um, and then we have Hakate who comes in, who is like on this fringe of society. Ultimately, yeah. they all can, they all represent a fringe of society in a different way. And that's, they do really, really neat, I think. So I don't yeah, think it necessarily do. matters which one you believe or who you follow or whatever. But I just think it's really fascinating. That story, the journey, the journey is wild. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm still, I'm, you know what? We should also do a deep dive on Lucifer at some point. Yeah. And just general like demons and, and Satan-like characters from different traditions you know well, because again I think a lot of us what we I what we understand a demon to be is really centered on a Christian ideal and if you the minute you start looking outside of that you see that the whole con it's just like hell the whole concept mm-hmm. of hell 
and the whole concept of of an, an underworld can be a different thing from what we know it as. We all have, mm-hmm. we're all very informed by Christianity and we're all very informed by um, like by Brit by Britain, you know what I mean? By England, by the United yeah, Kingdom. Yeah. So um, it's fun. It's fun to dive in and figure out, oh, maybe not everybody was informed like that. <laughs> you know? Like, I mean, yeah, not everyone was, witchcraft or Christianity wasn't always around, right? And um, there are so many different traditions that exist in the world today that don't center on Christianity that mm-hmm. bleed into this stuff as well. Which, but I really like I to be honest with you in in doing this dive into Artemis and Diana, and even Aradia, I appreciate I appreciate the point of I mean why she's there because Aradia ends up begin becoming the center point for neopaganism, essentially the mm-hmm. resurgence of all of this stuff. So that's an important yeah. position whether or not it is and I mean can you really say what is real what makes something real or not time (laughs) what makes a goddess real or not you know what I mean so it just depends on 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 how you look at it but doing this deep dive into Diana and Artemis um I felt so connected with it in doing the research and I saw a Mm -hmm. lot of my own rural energy in it like as I'm walking Mm -hmm. outside with my dog and my black cat (laughs) in the the forest I was like oh and I realized (laughs) not to get super woo-woo about it but I realized the first time I was in France in February of 2016 Michael and I went to the Louvre and all I saw when while I was there was these gorgeous statues of Artemis and Diana all the time oh and that's like cool. and I was so confused the whole time because I was like who is are they the same are they and I me not yeah I think a lot of us we know there was a Roman group that we know there was a Greek group but the line's muddy and if you don't take the if you don't have or you can't take the time to really break it apart, you, you don't really mm-hmm. know. You know what I mean? The lines have to muddy in order for any transition to take place. Things yes. have to get messy for a little while and overlap, right? And you kind of have things coexisting at the same time. This is the thing. I think a lot, especially in these days, in the moment we're in right now, we see a lot in terms of politics and a lot of conversation on the far right about this concept of purity and what is the one true thing. And, and I understand it from both angles because on one hand, there are some traditions out there that I think deserve uh, a respect and deserve uh, the right to exist and do things the way they need to do them. That's usually related to repressed religions or Mm -hmm. practices that have been repressed historically because of things like colonization and whatever. Mm -hmm. But when we really start to peel the layers back, whether it's through myths, whether it's through genealogy, anything, you start to see that we're like, especially in Europe, I'm going to just focus on Europe. Everything is such a mix. Yeah. Everything bleeds in and out of itself and into something else. And it's been used as a tool for a very, very long time. But it's also part of the way that things just move and progress, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's really fascinating. (laughs) 
<laughs> to, become aware, to become aware of that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. No, this is really cool. I am curious now, um, when you see images of Diana and mm. images of Artemis and they have the crescent moons over them, do those crescent moons both face the same direction? Are they well, both waxing? Are they both waning? From what I remember is when you see the crescent moon, it's like it's like the U. So it's not oh. facing one way or another. It's- yeah, you're right. Interesting. Yeah. So I was like, if Hecate is associated with the new moon and she's got like the central point. Yeah. Mother. Yeah. Who's maiden? Who's crone? Yeah. I think that I'm speculating because this takes me way, way back, but I do think that Artemis is connected with the maiden because she's a virgin. So I think she's connected with maiden energy. And then I know that there's a a triple moon goddess between the three of them, which is Artemis as the maiden. Um, I think it's Demeter who represents the mother, the harvest, and then Mm -hmm. uh, Hecate who represents the crone. Or, or, Mm -hmm. sorry, my bad. Celine. Celine. Yeah, I was just about as soon as I said it, I was like, I know that's not right. Because Celine is the actual representation of the moon, like the full moon. Yeah, 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 you're right. So they're, they're the three, the three moon goddess. They really like their trifectas, eh? I mean, triples, threes can be found in so many traditions, faiths, folklores, like trees, three is a big number. I my mom when I was a little kid she used to have this like statue in our garden that was of three women standing like back to back and I always loved it so much and I've been looking for one to put in my garden like ever ever since you the want only your statue own I want Hecate. it's my only statue I want in my garden yeah <laughs> <laughs> so these are this is the story of Diana Artemis how they've merged and how somewhere in the mix Aradia got brought into play but Diana Honestly, is... that one just weirds me out, but it's because of the Christian connection. And because like I think my my hackles go up with like anything that Christianity gets involved in that's not necessarily I don't think that it's necessarily a Christian connection. It's more of a it's more of an actual connection to Judaism and like Kabbalah and things like that. Like that's kind of where Lucifer really actually came That's from. true. So and and also I think it's interesting just because, like I said, it's kind of taking characters that of importance from certain time mm-hmm. periods and shifting them and redefining them. Just like Lucifer is defined as the devil in the medieval ages, and now Lucifer has been kind of reintroduced to, with our into our society, maybe with the help of that guy as whoever he was, like as the light bearer. You know what I mean? So, anyway. It's an yeah. We should definitely we should do, do a thing episode. on him. Yeah, for sure. We should do some biblical folklore. Oh yeah, biblical folklore uh, for sure. I love biblical yeah. folklore. Don't even get me started on that. But yeah, so <laughs> I overall, I just think it's very cool. And Diana is still venerated to this day. She's still considered an an incredibly important um, deity to those who. Uh, practice a religious following around Wicca and witchcraft. And, um, you know, she's a sister too, very deeply related to Hecate, who is also very venerated. 
And I'm just proud of both, not proud, proud's the wrong word. I just think it's super cool that they're still kicking it and back in like full force, despite literal nations of men mostly trying to repress them. They've still found their way forward and they have found allies in that process as well. And that's really cool. That's, that should be the biggest takeaway from all of this. That is really cool. Yeah, for sure. So we hope that you enjoyed this episode of the allegory story and we will see you for the next one. Yeah. Don't forget to like subscribe and join us on Instagram at allegory story podcast, or send an email. If you want to get in touch, offer comments, suggestions, theories, we're, we're up for all of it. Uh, the allegory story podcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.